may be wondering why I'm up here this morning, and Pastor Fisher is also here. It's because, as you may remember the note he sent out, his uncle uh, died, and uh, he and some of his family went down to the funeral in West Virginia. He wasn't sure at that time whether he'd be back uh, this morning or later this morning or last night. He got back last night so that he could be here, but he'll be preaching this evening as he continues. Actually, I think he's preaching from Mark this evening, but uh, it's good occasionally as this happens that we together can look at the book of Romans. Just so happens that this morning we're not in the book of Romans, but we really are because we're looking at something very much related to what we did last week. So we're going to step out of the book of Romans uh, to look at another passage of how the Apostle Paul speaks about this gospel that we have just begun in chapter 3 to look at in Romans, a gospel of which he is not ashamed. And really, you see that in all of his writings, there is no shame with regard to the gospel for the Apostle Paul. This salvation, as he writes so beautifully of it in all of his letters, is a multifaceted salvation and something that needs to be seen from every angle, for only then will we truly, truly understand the grace and the love that the Lord has shown to us in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do very briefly and very pointedly is just simply to go to the, one of the most familiar passages. Perhaps you've memorized it. You should if you haven't. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul speaks of what many theologians refer to as the great exchange. I've simply used that as the sermon title because it is a well-known phrase that many have used over the years to talk about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the great exchange. Now, throughout history, of course, there has been no doubt uh, examples, uh, people willing to die in the place of others to exchange their life for the life of someone else. The Apostle Paul in chapter 5 of Romans seems to acknowledge this when he writes, as he talks about the love of God in Christ for sinners like us, he says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And so throughout history, we've heard stories, we've seen them in our movies and in our literature, stories, great stories of self Sacrifice. Perhaps one of the most famous and well-known examples comes from Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. I believe my wife's favorite book, but in that great story of this self-sacrifice, uh, we see the characters, Sidney Carton, Charles Darnay, uh, and we see the Manette family, all key characters in this great story. It happens that Charles and Sidney physically resemble one another, which really helps in carrying out the plot at the end. Charles, of course, is married to Lucy Manette. Sidney is uh, also in love with her. He's expressed her love to her. Sidney desires, it seems, in his life to redeem a very misspent life. He was earlier a drunkard, and he did not live his life in a way that was very commendable to any. And so at the end of the story, you may know it well, he, he decides to switch places with Charles, who is in prison and condemned to the guillotine, as so many were in that day of the French Revolution. 
He manages to make this exchange, of course, with the help of some key people. Charles is freed, reunited with his wife Lucy and their family. Sidney Carton is taken to the guillotine. And the famous words, of course, he says at the very end of that story, not publicly, but just privately, it seems, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. And it is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. I found it, as you know the story, perhaps, and you know the, the emotional aspects of the story, I found it very interesting that in the movie, and I think it was the first movie that was done of this great story in 1935, that after the story was over, after the ending of the film, up on the screen flashed the words of Jesus from John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I'm not sure if those words would ever flash today above any story of self-sacrifice, but it certainly indicates that perhaps even for um, the author, Charles Dickens, and certainly for the makers of the movie, this indicates that those makers believe that what Sidney Carton had done in exchanging his life for another man's life and receiving a death sentence really has its roots in what the Bible teaches us about what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like you and like me. But that's where the comparison ends, of course. Sidney Carton is not uh, a perfectly righteous man. He's certainly not a sinless man. But they were right to see the connection of this self-sacrifice. Remember the words of Jesus in Mark's gospel as he attempted uh, or as he spoke in those, uh, chap that 10th chapter of what his real focus was in coming to this world. He says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It is to this greatest of exchanges that I want us to turn this morning as we continue to flesh out the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed in the book of Romans. We'll be going uh, back to Romans in the coming weeks, but I wanted to take this moment to really look at this uh, multifaceted salvation through another lens that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which so clearly and perhaps most clearly than any other passage speaks to this great exchange. Stand, if you would, please, as we hear and as we receive the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to begin in verse 11. It gives us the fuller context, but our focus very clearly will be on verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, 
we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, how thankful we are even in this moment that this word, this pronouncement stands forever. And it is what we believe. It is what by your mercies we have come to embrace. Those of us who have trusted and by faith believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you press it now upon our hearts and minds? Would you help us to find peace and rest, comfort and confidence in what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ? And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're following in the evening, whether in person or online, our study in the book of Romans, you know that we have just now begun looking at what Paul says is the answer, the answer to our great need as condemned sinners before a holy God. He has, you will remember, in chapters 1 through 3, talked very clearly about the condition of all people, Jew and Gentile. That's, that's Paul's division of the world. We remember that. Paul divides the world in that way, the covenant people, if you will, of God, the Jews, and then the Gentiles who are outside of that. Those are the two great divisions in the world. But he has already condemned all. The lost condition belongs to both because of our sin and our guilt before God. He has left, he said, all of mankind without excuse before God. Now in the present, as well as there on the great day of judgment, which all men Paul acknowledges all men know is truly coming. And in our last study, we saw how Paul tells the Roman believers that now, now in this epoch, in this age, in the coming of Christ, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed for all to see in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to illustrate that, the last time we were together, the apostle gave us three pictures to show us what it is that God has done for sinners like us in Jesus Christ. And so from the language of the temple, he uh, recalls a word or draws from a word from the sacrificial system. The word is propitiation. And it's a term that refers to the offering of a sacrifice, the blood offering to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. 
All of that was prefigured in the sacrificial system. Those, uh, that blood of bulls and goats could never satisfy the wrath of God. But they pointed to the sacrifice, the one sacrifice to come, the blood of his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that the father's wrath because of that sacrifice is turned away. And then from the language of the marketplace, and particularly the place where slaves were traded, bought and sold, Paul spoke and introduced the word redemption, a term referring to the buying back of those who were in bondage to sin through the payment of a price. And it enables to rescue them, which they themselves could never do. And then finally, we noted that he draws from the language of the courtroom as well, courtroom where the judge sits and pronounces the, the defendant either guilty or not guilty. It's a term that refers to what God has done, who is both, Paul says, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, that he is now, because of Christ, able to declare the sinner to be just and acceptable in his sight, to pronounce the not guilty verdict over that sinner, all of his sins now being taken away. But even more than that, as we noted, that he is given a new record of perfect obedience to the law so that not only is able to say that the sinner now is not guilty because of Christ, but because of what Christ has done and his perfect obedience Now we are declared to be perfectly righteous, having a new record of full and perfect obedience before the Father. Now, all of these are great and important theological terms. You should know them all. Every one of them should be on the forefront of your minds to understand this multifaceted salvation which God has wrought for us in Christ. But they're not the only terms the Bible uses. There are many other terms, and this morning we're going to look at another one, a very, very important one that Paul uses in these verses. There's a lot of overlap in these terms. You'll see that this morning. But here in this verse, he introduces another very fitting picture uh, that is drawn from the world itself, which is a world that is in itself and with itself alienated in itself and certainly alienated from God. That word, of course, you see it here in the text. The word is reconciliation. It's what he pleads for the people to be, to be reconciled, he says in verse 20, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is a term that means to bring together two previously alienated parties, parties that are at odds. Paul knew a lot about that as he writes to the Corinthian church, didn't he? Remember the beginning of 1 Corinthians, how he admonishes them and rebukes them for what? For their divisions. They were all divided, claiming to be of this leader or that leader. Paul, throughout the whole book of Corinthians, is dealing with a church that is very troubled by its alienation among its members. He's calling them so often to peace. And so this idea of reconciliation would be very common in his mind. And remember that Paul lives in a world, and that division was not just Paul's Jew and Gentile, But he lives in a world where the whole world is defined by this alienation between these two groups. And so we go to places like Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Paul is very careful to write 
that Jesus has now become peace. Broken down, he says, the middle wall of partition that existed between Jew and Gentile, so that now together we are all together one in Jesus Christ. That's reconciliation. You see, for the Bible, those animosities, that alienation that all of us understand, all of us know, in our own relationships, within our families, in broader ways throughout our lives, all of those pictures of alienation are all symptoms of another alienation that is at the root of them all. And the alienation that Paul wants to deal with is that root alienation between God and man. And so he's going to do it in this passage, and he's going to do it very clearly, and I believe in a very helpful way as we seek to understand this gospel of which Paul is not ashamed. And so three things to note very quickly this morning. Let's look at the verse again first. Let me read it. Verse 21, for our sake, he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, the one who knew no sin, we might become the righteousness of God. The first thing we see is this picture of a needy sinner, a needy sinner. Uh, The ESV puts this at the forefront. It's the emphasis of the verse, for our sake, he says. It is for our sake. This is not something God was compelled to do uh, in and of himself. There was no need to do this apart from our need. And and so it is for our sake that God entered into this great work because of our sin, because of our separation from him. Everything was motivated and directed and initiated by God, as we'll see in a moment. But it is for our sake that this great exchange, this great sacrifice of which the exchange speaks of, needed to take place on behalf of us, is what Paul says whatever it is that Paul is speaking of here in this text. And we know what it is. It's the work of Christ and dying on the cross and shedding his blood for our sins. Paul says it was done for the sake of sinners like you and like me because, he says, our great problem, and the verses we read in its context, is that we are separated from God. We are enemies of God, as Paul will say in Romans, because of our sin. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, and Paul will make that argument in Romans as well in chapter 5, were identified with Adam, Adam the head of all of humanity, and us being united to Adam because he is the first. That from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, separated from God, alienated by nature from God because of their sin and rebellion. Against him. That is who we are, Paul says, by our very nature. He says that earlier in the passage, just a couple verses before, in verse 19, he talks about not counting their trespasses against them. That's our condition. We have trespasses that are counted in our column, if you will, of debt to God. We have trespasses that are counted against us. He describes us this way in verse 15. We are those who live for ourselves. 
We live for ourselves. That's what an alienated position does before God. We're not living for him or seeking his glory or pleasure. We are alienated in everything we are by nature and by action from God. This is our lost condition, Paul says, to be separated from God, who is life itself. Now, we don't need to drive this point home very much more because of what we've studied in Romans 1 through 3. There, Paul made it very clear uh, what our alienation looks like from God, that we are separated by our sins, that we fall short of his glory, that we can never live up to the perfect standard of his righteousness, that the law, far from being something we can obey to give us acceptance to God, only condemns us and shows us what our sin really is. And so when Christians throughout the ages write about our salvation, In this context of why this was necessary, they understand that it was always necessary because of us, for our sake, on behalf of us, that God did this. Philip Bliss, in his wonderful hymn, Man of Sorrows, What a Name, captures, I think, in the language he uses, all the idea of those who were alienated from Christ, from God. Man of sorrows, speaking of Christ, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Ruined sinners. That's who we are. That is the for our sake in this verse. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood When he bore our shame, that's our natural condition. And then guilty, vile, and helpless we. You see, the great hymn writers, the great theologians of years past always spoke of the need for God, if you will, to do this, not for any other reason, but for his own glory and pleasure. But his aim was for our sake, for our benefit on behalf of us, doing something we could never, ever do for ourselves. And so this first point that we are needy sinners is clear in Romans. It's clear here. It is for our sake. We're the helpless ones. We are the needy ones. That's why on our bulletin, ever since we began at Village back in 2001, I I wanted those words in the forefront of our minds every single week. That's why we have the words that we do. Him we proclaim, Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Him we preach. Why is it him we preach? It's on our behalf that we preach Christ because we need to hear the message of reconciliation because we are by nature, by practice, by every measure, needy sinners. The second point, you see it in just the one word that follows that statement, and it's very clear, he. In older versions, you might see this capitalized because it's a reference to the Father, to God the Father, And what Paul is trying to say in this one word, but in the whole context of everything we read, is that this is the work of God, the Father. As I said earlier, he is the sole initiator of this gracious work. It is the Father who seeks those 
whom he will save. It is the Father who calls, the Father who chooses, the Father who elects, the Father who planned and purposed salvation, the Father with the Son and the Spirit who carried it all out. It is the work solely of God. That is what Paul emphasizes here. He takes away any sense in which the sinner, being so needy, is able to do this themselves. There is nothing that we can do, the Bible says, and Paul says here, that would affect our salvation. Nothing that we can do that will bring us into a right relationship with God. It is all the work of the Father, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our gracious God. And so we have passages all over the Bible that remind us of this, don't we? Our study of Isaiah comes to mind as so many places in Isaiah speaks about how salvation is clearly and only of the Lord. It is his great work on our behalf. Isaiah 53, of course, being the chief places in Isaiah where we see this. And you see this exchange, don't you, in Isaiah 53, the language of Paul when he talks about this great exchange. It's not new to him. It's not his own idea. He's drawing it from the Old Testament scriptures as the Isaiah writes, as the Lord speaks through Isaiah. Surely he has borne, speaking of Christ, our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, not for anything that he did. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord, the Father here, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And later, those verses that occur later in Isaiah 53, he was pleased to crush him, the son, for our sake. This is the work of a gracious father who was willing, as John tells us in that famous verse in John 3.16, who was willing to give his one and only son for us, to give him to us as a gift to give him to us as the one through whom our salvation would be secured. It is the work of a gracious father on our behalf and for our sake. But thirdly, and we'll finish here as spending most of our time on this point, because this is where Paul spends his time. This verse speaks, of course, of a sinless savior. You know, sometimes it is interesting and sometimes there are things that we as pastors say with respect to the original language here, Greek. But I think it's important here to note the the sort of literal translation of this verse, because I think in Paul's mind it tells us something. That as this verse was literally written in its order, it says this, the one not knowing sin on behalf of us, sin he made in order that we might become righteousness of God in him. The highlight for Paul, the focus for Paul, is on this issue, that this Savior is a sinless Savior, the one not knowing sin. That tells us a lot, doesn't it? 
Jesus lived his whole life in perfect obedience to the Father in response to the words of David and as a way of claiming that truth for himself. He, he declares, of me it is written, in the scroll I have come to do your will. He was the only one who ever lived in this world, in human flesh, who delighted and perfectly kept the law of God and did it with great joy, who perfectly kept every statute, every commandment, everything that God had ever spoken to us that we might obey him. Jesus was the only one. He had never known sin never knew the touch of sin on his life as far as something that was within him that he fought. It was never there. It was impossible, we say rightly, for Jesus ever to sin. And he himself bore this out when he spoke to his disciples and he said, Satan has nothing in me, he says. There's nothing in me that he can attack or, or go after, unlike you and I, as we live every day with all sorts of ways in which Satan can come and attack us and appeal to us. There is nothing in Jesus, no shadow of turning, no sin whatsoever. And so Paul says it's this one who did not know sin, not knowing sin, who became sin for us. Literally here, as Paul says, he, the father, made him to be sin. This is the language, as we've said in other places, of imputation, where God the father took the sins of his people that he had chosen and for whom Christ would die. He took those sins and he placed them upon his sinless son, our savior, so that he might literally become sin. Not that he would become in that moment sinful, but rather that the weight of our sin and the responsibility for its punishment would fall upon him. Christ was reckoned to be sin for you and me if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. For all who trust in him, for it is by faith that we come to enter into this and so for all who believe in Jesus, as Paul said back in Romans chapter 3, it is all by faith. For all who come to believe, God has reckoned or counted Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. But that's not the great exchange, is it? There's more to it. So that in him, we sinners in need of a Savior... We who are for the sake that the Father did this, we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ's work on our behalf, not only his sacrificial work on the cross, what is often called his, his passive obedience, that in obeying the Father even to the point of death, death on the cross, he by the shedding of his blood paid the price for our sins so that God can forgive us and wipe away the debt that was against us because of our sins. That that passive obedience, obedience to the Father, as Philippians 2 says, even to the point of death on the cross, would be the means by which God would be able to forgive and cleanse us from all sin. Sinners plunged beneath that flood 
the flood and the blood of Christ washing away all of our sin. But that's not how we become righteous, is it? That simply removes the debt. That's not perfect holiness. That's the absence of sin, which is a good thing. Praise God for it. But Paul says here there's a transaction that happens because of his active obedience, his perfectly holy life, his never sinning at all. That that righteousness and record that he earned before the Father is counted in our column of need. That now the sins being gone, we also have a perfect record of righteousness. That God sees us in Christ. And that's the language that Paul so loves throughout his letters. We are united to, we are seen as being in Christ. So his righteousness becomes ours. This is the righteousness of God that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3. In the beginning of our discussion, this will be all throughout Romans. This righteousness that is not ours, alien to us, has been credited to our account, given to us, so that we stand in that righteousness. As much as we like the, the story of a tale of two cities, the great problem, of course, it's a beautiful picture of self-sacrifice. But the great problem is that Sidney Carton was not a righteous man. He wanted to redeem his own life. He wanted to pay, if you will, for his own sins. And he thought that this would be the way in the story to be able to redeem some measure of his life, to do something that he had never done before. But that is not a parallel to what Jesus did because he had no sins for which he needed to die, nothing that he had to pay for himself. He went as a sinless savior, a spotless lamb, Behold the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sins of the world. How is that possible unless he would be perfectly righteous and sinless before the Father? So that the Father could take our sins and the judgment we deserve and lay it fully upon his Son on the cross. He is a sinless Savior. And that's the great exchange. Our sins we give to him. His righteousness he gives to us. And theologians and songwriters, hymn writers, anyone who has ever sought to plumb the depth of God's love for us in Christ have been utterly confounded and amazed and beyond words able to explain this great transaction that took place on the cross where God did this great work for our sake he, the Father, made him the Son, spotless Savior, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him and because of him, we might become the righteousness of God. Calvin says it this way in many places. Here in his Institutes in Book 4, he says, We can confidently assure ourselves that eternal life of which he himself is the heir, speaking of Christ, is ours. And that the kingdom of heaven into which he has entered can no more be taken from us than from him. On the one hand, that we cannot be condemned for our sins from the guilt of which he absolves us, seeing that he has been pleased that these sins should be imputed to himself 
as if they were his own. This is, he says, the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness, having become with us the Son of Man in the flesh, he has made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to the earth, he has prepared our ascent into heaven. Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong, strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred to us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, guilty before God, he has clothed us with his righteousness. That's the great exchange. Try as you will to plumb the depth of it, you will never fully grasp or understand in this life or I believe in the life to come as to the depth of his love. Paul speaks of the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of his love that is beyond tracing out. We can't possibly plumb the depths of it. And the focus of this great love, the focus of this salvation, the heart of it is here in this verse, this great transaction, this great exchange. Three things as we close then, as we seek to come back out of this text and apply it to our hearts and lives. This has to be, it must be, as believers and followers of Christ, our greatest joy. It must be our greatest joy, a joy that uh, consumes our thoughts, our heart, our mind, as we consider the things of Christ. There are very few things in this world that bring us joy more than to know that we are reconciled to someone with whom we have been alienated. Many people, perhaps even in this room, I certainly have, have been alienated from people at odds, we would say, and yet we've been reconciled through the blood of Christ, brought near together again through what God has done. Sometimes the Lord does not allow that true reconciliation to take place on this side of life, uh, on this side of the life to come, I say. And so we're forced sometimes to live in a state of sadness and pain, which will only be taken away when we leave this broken world. In this world, we are left to pray and ask that God would indeed grant true reconciliation horizontally with those with whom we are alienated. But praise God that this is not left open to uh, time or not left for the future. It is our present possession that brings us great joy to know that we have this deep and true, full reconciliation with God. This is our joy with which no other joy can compare, that we are no longer alienated from God, that we can stand before his presence with great joy, joy inexpressible and full of glory as we consider what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says, isn't it, in his letter. Though you do not now see him, yet believing you rejoice, he says, with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is a present possession and one in which you can walk with the greatest of joys that you and I, if you believe in him, 
are truly reconciled to God. We no longer fear condemnation, Paul says, because we are reconciled to him. Do you know this morning that joy and are you living in it as you live before him every day? Secondly, it is also our great confidence. It is our great confidence. Here is the great question. It's here in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. The context is earlier the judgment of God. We will all stand, he says, all of us before the judgment seat of Christ. So the, the context is the same. And the hope and the confidence that Paul gives here and in Romans is what will we do on that great day when Christ returns and judges all mankind? What will your confidence be on that day? What will you bet your life on? What will, you, what will enable you to stand before his holy presence with confidence and joy? It is only this, what Paul has noted in this verse. It is only because you know that your sins, because of his sacrifice on the cross, are washed away and that you now possess and bear his righteousness, which is given to you by Jesus. It's only this, that we stand before him, having our sins washed away by the blood of Christ and are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, having received the forgiveness of our sins and that perfect righteousness by grace alone through faith alone. This is what Luther noted as well, as he with Calvin and so many others wrestled with this idea of this exchange he says, what we have, the same is also his, Christ's. But the exchange, he says, is exceedingly unequal. For he has everlasting innocence and righteousness and life and salvation, which he gives to be our own. While what we have is sin and death and damnation and hell, and these we give to him. For he has taken our sins upon him. He has delivered us from the power of the devil. He has crushed his head, taken him prisoner, cast him down to hell, so that now we may with Paul undauntedly say, O death, where is your sting? So in the presence of death, the last enemy to be destroyed, we can live with confidence because of what Paul writes in this verse, what God has done. That leads me thirdly, and I think very importantly, to our response to this. You know, the Bible, when it speaks of this, does not leave it out there for our minds to enjoy, our hearts to embrace, and to revel in. The great exchange between us and Christ, our sin upon him for his righteousness given to us, is actually meant, and we'll see this in Romans, we see it here even, it's actually meant to remind us that we are now in him new people. We have new lives, and so our response needs to be consistent with that. It's not something that just is for theological minds to plumb the depths of, as I've said, but it is for every life so touched by this great transaction to live a changed life. And that's our response, a life that is changed. Notice what he says earlier. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. 
The exchange means that you yourself are different than you were before by faith you embraced that change. Paul himself in Philippians chapter 3 says regarding his own life, whatever gain he says I had, I counted all for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know, everyone who has ever truly been touched by this message has come to understand truly that their lives are not what they were, that having been forgiven our sins, we desire now to live before God in holiness and righteousness of life. Having given, been given a righteousness which is not ours, that comes from Jesus for us, we desire to live that life of righteousness out in our lives. One commentator tells the story of William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army in London, as he focused his ministry when he founded this uh, army to go out and take the gospel to the world, focusing on the poor and suffering in the society. This is what William Booth said was his secret, if you will, his understanding of his life. He said this, when I understood what Jesus did for me, I vowed at that very moment that Jesus Christ would have everything that is William Booth. Everything. All of it. Why? Because it's a fitting response for the one and to the one who has given everything to us. And that is what this doctrine of reconciliation does it reminds us that we are transformed the author of our final hymn that we'll sing this morning is count zinzendorf nicholas zinzendorf you may not know that name but you know the hymn well jesus thy blood and righteousness speaking of this great transaction this great exchange he seemed to have and possess a deep and abiding faith from his early years. He was raised in a pietistic home under his grandmother's influence. This would remain a deep influence upon his life. And as a teenager, he and several other nobles formed a secret society, the Order of the Grain of Mustard Seed, picture of Jesus' parable, starting small, wanting to reach the world. The stated purpose of this order was that the members would use their positions of influence to spread the gospel. Later, a defining moment in his life transformed his life so that he wholeheartedly devoted it to Christ. In 1722, a small band of Moravian refugees crossed the border to where he was in his land, Hernhut, his place where he lived, and they asked permission to live on that land with him. He granted it to them and thus began a lifelong relationship with Moravian brethren. But it seems that missions was really at the heart of uh, his life, his great passion. He organized the first Protestant mission work in St. Thomas, West Indies. And although William Carey is often referred to as the father of modern missions, 
He himself, that is, Kerry, would credit Zinzendorf with that role and often referred to the model of the earlier Moravians in his own journal. Zinzendorf died at his home in 1760. He was claimed to be the author of some 2,000 hymns, but this is the one that is most well-known, the one that has lasted. Believe it or not, and boy, aren't we glad for our hymn editors, this originally contained 33 stanzas. We're not going to sing 33 stanzas. We're going to sing what we have, but it originally contained that as he considered all that we have talked about this morning and put it into metrical verse. It was translated in 1740 by his good friend John Wesley, who along with his brother Charles was converted through contact with the Moravian brethren. It bears all the marks of his pietism focused intensely on personal experience of a relationship with Christ rather than simply an intellectual assent to certain principles and truths. The hymn, like his overall theology, was extraordinarily Christ-centered. Zinzendorf's life motto was, I have but one passion, and that is Christ and only Christ. You see, that's the response. It's the only response of those who have come to experience this great exchange. We'll sing these words, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold, he says, shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice, now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress, Jesus thy blood and righteousness. You see, all of those things that we've talked about are here. This is our great joy to know that through Christ we have been reconciled with God, that the enmity that existed, the alienation between God and us has been removed by Christ. And this is our great confidence now and on that day to know that we are clothed in his righteousness, made able to stand in him on that great day without fear. By his blood we are cleansed and by his life we possess a perfect record of righteousness. And this is our great change as well to no longer live for self, but for him who died for us, who now lives for us, and by his spirit now works in us, making us new creations in him to the praise of his glorious grace. This is what Paul says is the good news. This is the gospel. I pray this morning that each one here has believed it and remains believing it and in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we will soon declare through our voices of praise that which we ought to declare, that our glorious dress, our beauty now is not found in ourselves, but before your presence, our only beauty, our only loveliness, our only perfection is that which Christ has given to us through this great exchange, this great transaction, our sins given to him, And all that they deserve, he paying the full price, his perfect record of righteousness now ours, and which are our beautiful and glorious dress. How we thank you and praise you and pray that by your spirit you would work these things into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.